Welcome to Copyright Clearance in this podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, September 28th, 2018. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, who joins me today from the magazine's offices in New York City. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So you've covered the disquiet at Barnes & Noble on this show over the summer, but now that fall is here, the bookseller's fortunes are beginning to look up. Stock price has rebounded by nearly 25%, and the stores have got a big book sell in Bob Woodward's Fear. Coming in Monday's issue, PW has an exclusive interview with BNN founder and chairman Len Riggio. Tell us about that. Yeah, so you know, in a wide-ranging talk with PW editorial director Jim Milliot, uh, Len Riggio looks to turn the page on what has been a, a pretty persistent narrative, and that's that the nation's largest book-selling chain is a company in turmoil. And, you know, a lot of people have held the Riggio doesn't seem to want to let go of his position at Barnes & Noble, right? They've had four CEOs in five years, and the talk is, is that Len just can't let go. But right up front in his talk, in his talk with Jim, Len Riggio sought to set that aside, saying he actually wasn't happy when he returned in 2016, after the surprise firing of Ron Boire, that was after just a year on the job, I think, for, for Boire. But this time he said he is happy to be back, saying that he thinks he actually brings the necessary leadership uh, in this really important time for the company. And he expressed full confidence in his management team, despite the assertions that were made in the recent defamation suit filed by Demos Perneros. Well, we would expect Riggio to take his team's side, I suppose, but he has to see the situation looks rather volatile from the outside, doesn't he? Something in a lawsuit by an ex-CEO certainly doesn't help. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think it's interesting because Riggio does push back against the notion that Barnes & Noble is unstable. You know, he doesn't dispute that the company's poor performance during the holiday season last year was, in his words, unnerving. Uh, and it sounds like he's not planning on giving up control anytime soon, though, I have to say, uh, with the, the holiday season approaching again now this year uh, and some of the recent distractions caused by Panero's suit. It's just not the right time to bring in a new CEO, he says. Um, and, you know, you're right that the suit from Panero's has to make it hard to recruit talent too. But Len told Jim that the company is in fact stable. And he pointed to the fact that a number of executives have been with the company for a long period, if not their CEOs. And, you know, it also includes a large number of importantly store managers around the country. Now, Riggio stressed again that he's confident Barnes & Noble is going to improve its comp store sales this holiday season. This is a huge season for the bookseller. There's no question about it. And you know, I would have to say I would hope so. And I think that he's going to have an assist in improving sales this year, given the blockbusters that are going to be on sale. You know, Not only do we have Bob Woodward's book, Fear, which has already sold over a million copies, but Michelle Obama has a big book coming out in the fall as well. That's due in mid-November. And Riggio also doubled down on Barnes & Noble getting closer to its bookstore roots again. And I found this part of the interview interesting because, as Jim Millia points out in the interview, several times in the past, Riggio has rejected the suggestion that Barnes & Noble should become more like Canada's Indigo chain. Indigo, of course, bills itself as a, quote, cultural department store. Uh, and what's interesting to me about that is that Indigo, of course, is one of the companies people think might have been the suitor who agreed to and then backed out of buying Barnes & Noble this past spring. Uh, Riggio said in the past that you know a move like that is not in the company's DNA to become the quote-unquote cultural department store. But I have to wonder if he would turn down a check if it was indeed Indigo that was making the, the, the approach to Barnes & Noble. Well, you make the case then, Andrew, that this is certainly an important time for the bookseller. 
Last week, the company opened a new prototype store, and more of those are scheduled to roll out soon. They will need to show some results for these efforts, though. I think that's exactly right. You know, Len Riggio can give all the interviews he wants, but the only thing that's going to make talk of turmoil go away is results. And, you know, and that's true whether you're Len Riggio or Jack Dorsey or Elon Musk, right? You, you have to show results, and then it doesn't really matter what the other stuff that's going on is. And, and you know, there's no question it's, that's going to be a tough haul for Barnes & Noble because bookselling these days faces a lot of challenges, not just in management. I mean, there are some structural problems facing the book business these days. And meeting those challenges is really going to require energy and fresh thinking. And we'll see if Len Riggio and his longtime team could get those desired results. And, and that's really the question. Can they get this done? You know, as you mentioned, the new prototype stores are rolling out. The first one came out in Columbia, Maryland. That opened on September 19th. There's three more of those stores set to roll out in 2018. You know, and it's interesting. The Columbia store is 17,000 square feet, so a smaller footprint than the superstores that Barnes & Noble has had in the past. It's going to stock 35,000 titles. It features design touches like oak shelves. There's there's USB and electricity ports in the cafe area. And at the center, there's this these large book theaters, which we're going to offer customers this 360-degree browsing-in-the-round experience. And you know, booksellers at the store are also going to wander around with tablet computers to facilitate customer service. So you know, these are all nice touches that we would expect, I think, in a retail store these days. Uh, the store is also going to have self-serve kiosks that are going to help customers locate books as well. And you know, Riggio said that Barnes & Noble expects to learn something new from each of these new prototype stores as they roll out. Uh, and they hope to have what he calls a final prototype, I guess, what's going to be the future of Barnes & Noble, ready in about 12 to 18 months. So can these new stores, these new prototypes, are they going to hit upon a model that's going to turn around the fortunes of the company? We'll have to see. Well, indeed, stores are critical to a brick-and-mortar forward outfit like BNN, yet so many of us buy books online today, and the company's own e-retail site, BNN.com, has struggled. Did Riggio address the digital side of his business? Yeah, you know, briefly, but my impression is that, uh, you know, that's the next CEO's problem, you know, as well as like taking the final prototype forward for Barnes and Noble. That's also, I believe, going to be on the next CEO's plate. Uh, Riggio did say that, you know, he thought that the Nook could remain part of the company, noting that Nook remains important for many of Barnes and Noble's customers, though I wonder how many. And he also said something really interesting about ebooks that, you know, when ebooks first started to take off, he, like many of us in the business, were convinced that everything was going to change, that everything was going to be digital, but not so much. You know, we know now that that's really not happening. Uh, ebooks have been sort of lagging behind for the past few years, for traditional publishers anyway. And the sense that I get is that, you know, once Riggio gets the company through this little stretch, the holiday period, the prototype store, that he is ready to step back again. So, you know, for now, he says, though, he's the one in the chair. You know, he's taking the heat upon him. You know, he's leading the choir. And one other interesting comment that I'll note, too, in the interview is that Riggio says he doesn't agree with publishers who believe that the next CEO of Barnes & Noble needs to have book experience. Notably, he points out that for retail to be successful, it often comes down to, as it does in real estate, to location, location, location. So he still seems to think that you know there's a more fundamental challenge for Barnes & Noble is finding the right prototype and the right place for those stores than and figuring out what's going on with the digital component. So we'll have to wait and see. 
When copyright clearance ends beyond the book returns, Andrew Albanese tells us why publishers are cheering about legislation in Brussels and Washington. I'm Christopher Keneally with Copyright Clearance Centers Beyond the Book. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book. It's Friday, September 28th, 2018, and Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly joins me as he does each Friday with news and insights on the world of publishing and reading. Before the break, Andrew, you quoted Len Riggio, Barnes & Noble CEO, that when ebooks first came on the scene, he thought everything would be digital. Indeed, a lot of people agreed with him. But that hasn't turned out to be the case. Ebooks have been in decline for three years for traditional publishers. And so in 2018, one of the big digital stories you're expecting to find at Frankfurt Book Fair, which opens up in just 10 days' time. Yeah, so I, I just finished putting together a number a number of articles for one of our digital supplements, uh, and of course, uh, our listeners will be able to read those supplements online when the fair launches on October 10th. Uh, they're free on the Publishers Weekly uh, site. But you know what stands out to me. After more than a decade of digital disruption, really going back in earnest to, I remember 2004, when Google unveiled its scanning program at the, at the Frankfurt Book Fair. Through digital disruption and this raging growth in the tech sector, publishers have weathered the storm. And now going into Frankfurt this year in 2018, I think the big story is that lawmakers and regulators in Europe and the U.S. are kind of turning their attention to the tech sector. You know, over the last decade, especially uncertainty was a word we use mostly when we talked about publishers, but that word really does apply to the tech sector now. You know, Facebook's infamous corporate motto, I think, has become the, the de facto cri de cur for the entire tech sector, move fast and break things. But now, as we go to the Frankfurt Book Fair this year, it's clear from some of the laws and policy proposals in Europe and the U.S., Lawmakers today are interested in slowing down the digital world just a bit and, you know, maybe keeping some things unbroken, like perhaps democracy. Indeed, Andrew, Europe has been especially aggressive, strengthening consumers' right to privacy and advancing copyright reforms. In the U.S., we've seen hearings before Congress, though with relatively little to show for it until now. How has all this been greeted by publishers? Quite enthusiastically, for the most part, some of the editorials and things that we've seen or we'll see in this year's Frankfurt Show dailies are quite happy about the turn of events here. You know, as far as the in Europe, we were talking about Europe first, you know, as far as the Europe goes, the GDPR, which is Europe's general data protection rule. Publishers have, like anyone who deals with digital, had to actually work with that. They've had to update their terms of services for their digital businesses. And you know, that hasn't been easy for them, but it hasn't really had much of an impact, they say. But what I think the GDPR does is it really pulls the difference between publishers and online companies into sharp relief because a book doesn't read you. An ebook can, but for the most part, when you buy a book at a bookstore, that's the beginning and the end of the trans of the transaction. A bookstore doesn't track you. Uh, companies like Amazon and Google do. So I think the more people have control over their personal data, and the more people learn about how their personal data is being used, the more that I think that gaping competitive advantage for online companies 
starts to shrink, even if just a little, if people can take a little control back. You know, as for the copyright directive in Europe, it was a big deal. This The, the latest, the, the copyright for the single digital market advanced in Europe, but it still has a long way to go. And there are two major controversial articles that still need to be addressed. One is Article 11 that would call for online aggregators to license snippets, for example, like Google News-like things. And another Article 13 that would pave the way for, you know, filters to ferret out potential copyright infringement online. You know, you can expect the battle over those two things, especially to grow more pitched as the proposal advances. But publishers so far are delighted both with the proposals and that for once, lawmakers appear to be on their side, or at least they appear to be approaching copyright issues from their perspective, which is, you know, protecting creators' rights and, you know, just, you know, having consumers more in mind. So, so far, at least, publishers are feeling quite good about the way things are going in Europe. And on Capitol Hill, are we uh, any closer to seeing action than we have been in the past? So the policy debates in the U.S. have also ramped up. And of course, we've seen tech executives hauled before Congress recently, that Google and Amazon and Facebook and Twitter, all of those companies, there's this growing sense that in the U.S. Uh, that some kind of regulation, perhaps even antitrust action, is needed. Uh, something authors and publishing groups have been pressing for years in Congress. You know, it's interesting. The Association of American Publishers has been retooling for just such a policy push for the last 18 months. And last week they had their annual meeting. The AAP annual meeting was held at the Penguin Random House Auditorium here in New York last week. Uh, and you can read about that actually on the Publishers Weekly site. My editor, Jim Milliot, was there. And when that meeting kicked off, Penguin Random House CEO Marcus Dole greeted attendees by exclaiming, welcome to the new AAP before explaining how AAP over this last 18 months has really refocused itself to pursue a much more focused public policy mission in Washington, D.C. Now, I'm a little skeptical about how that strategy is going to work out for them. Uh, we can talk more about that at a later date, but I have to say that the move certainly appears to be well-timed. And you know, here's a hopeful sign. This week, Congress officially passed the Music Modernization Act. And this is the first substantive copyright reform bill in decades. Now, it doesn't really mean a lot for publishing. The bill basically streamlines the way online services license music and pay artists, and it federalizes this sort of murky patchwork of outdated state laws that used to govern recorded music before 1972. This was a necessary step in the age of Spotify. But the most important thing about the bill is this. It's a true compromise. The bill actually managed to get the support of several groups almost always at each other's throats. You have music publishers and record labels and songwriters. Uh, you have tech companies and digital rights groups. No one was happy with this bill, but everyone was satisfied at the end when it was done. Everyone didn't get everything they wanted, but everybody gave a little bit. And what we got was a common sense reform. You know, for too long, you know, when it comes to copyright, and I'll even say broader issues around technology, the, the debate has taken an almost religious fervor. And that's led to bad lawsuits and inaction and all kinds of missed opportunities. But the fact remains, we do live in a digital age. And these are there are things out there that we can do if we work together. And the music bill shows, to me at least, that this can actually happen. Now, can that bill serve as a template for stakeholders in other realms of copyright, publishers especially? We'll have to see. But at least we've seen a compromise when it comes to copyright reform. And that certainly is a good sign. Well, I don't know about music, Andrew Albanese, but when it comes to news about the publishing world, you're singing the right song for us here on Beyond the Book. Thanks for joining me this Friday and every Friday. 
My pleasure, as always. Coming next on Beyond the Book, publishers have long dreamed of quickly and easily repurposing catalogs from markets around the world. Transforming content, though, is no simple task. At the Frankfurt Book Fair on Wednesday, the 10th of October, Kyle Robinson and his colleague Renee Swank will co-present Getting on the Road to Intelligent Content. I asked my colleague at CCC to explain why intelligent content enables publishers to maximize their future freedom of action. The key point of intelligent content is that uh, it's about the relationships uh, and, and metadata that, that, that are held together with a piece of content. So the content is decorated with metadata around it and, and has relationships to other content. That ultimately makes it more easy to query that data and bring that intelligence together. I mean, somebody said intelligence is about making connections. Uh, and, and it's really that point of connecting that content using semantic enrichment uh, to um, leverage the intelligence that's there within those relationships so you can find stuff that you didn't know you were looking for, for example. On the road to intelligent content, next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, builders of unique solutions that connect content and rights in contextually relevant ways through software and professional services. CCC helps people navigate vast amounts of data to discover actionable insights, enabling them to innovate and make informed decisions. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening and join us again soon on Beyond the Book.